coming up on Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. Good news, people. Yes, you can change. And it's not as hard as you think. And you can start immediately. And you don't, it doesn't require willpower. It doesn't require discipline. By following the system, you can transform your life. That was our guest for today, BJ Fogg. You can hear more from BJ very soon. But first, we have to say a big thanks to the overarching sponsor of the show, Hawora, that looks to impact on individual and organizational health and well-being through four key pillars, physical, mental, social, and occupational. So do make sure to check it out at haworalife.com. H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high performing individuals tick, why they do what they do and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons and learnings. Today we spoke with BJ Fogg, behaviour scientist, innovator at Stanford University and author of Tiny Habits. Dr. BJ Fogg founded the Behaviour Design Lab at Stanford University, where he directs research, innovation and teaches industry innovators how to use his models and methods in behaviour design. The purpose of his research and teaching is to help millions of people improve their lives. He's trained company founders, Fortune 500 companies with a focus on health, productivity, and financial well-being. In this conversation, we discuss the Maui habit, how the pandemic has forged new habits and structuring tiny habits. We explore BMAP, a simple formula to analyze, design, and change behavior. We dive into building good habits, stopping bad ones, anchoring, celebrations of success, and hacking habits. We unpack the fog behavior maxims, such as help people feel successful, and other topics like swimming, pull-ups, self-improvement, courage, and serving others. BJ Fogg, thanks a million for joining us this morning. How are you? I'm good. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Look, really looking forward to digging into your story, BJ. But as where we'd like to start is, as you might know, it rains a lot in Ireland. That's why it's called the mm-hmm. Emerald Isle. We have a lot of green grass. But you have the Maui habit. And I think it'd be such a positive spin for us as Irish people to take into our days, which can fluctuate depending on what it looks like outside the window. Would you uh, shed a little bit of light on as to what that's all about? Boom. It's something I do every morning and it's something I suggest people do every morning. I did it this morning. As soon as my feet touched the floor as I was getting out of bed, I said, it's going to be a great day. Those seven words, it's going to be a great day. And that habit of saying those seven words, I call the Maui habit. And it's simple. It takes like three seconds, but it makes a difference. And I do it every morning, whether I feel like it's going to be a great day or not, because I know it helps. I've done this for about 10 years now. And before we dive into behavior change, behavior design, what I'd like to touch on is something that you, you did for your audiobook on Audible was a preface and almost a preface to this podcast today. You mentioned that you hired a voice coach in order to get the gig as your narrator of your book. And it was something that was really touching and it showed a bit of vulnerability. Would you like to expand on that and tell us what that experience was like? Yeah, that's a polite way to ask me to talk about this. So thank you. (laughs) It's not so much about hiring a voice coach. It's that I grew up with a very strange voice um, that didn't change until I was 18. So I talk like this. 
when I was 15, 16, 17, I, my voice, it, there's just no lower gear there. And that was humiliating. And so in hoping to narrate my own book, which is not a done deal. I mean, they don't just let authors do it. I really wanted to do this as kind of a landmark because I felt like I had a kind of a disability because of my voice as a kid. I got made fun of. I didn't do certain things because of my voice. Like I didn't run for student body president. I ran for vice president and won. But I ran for vice president because I didn't have to speak in front of the students and so on. And there were just so many ways that I was feeling as a kid, like, why me? And why is my voice the only weird one? And it really felt like something was fundamentally wrong with me. And there didn't seem to be any reason I could, any way I could force my voice to change. So went through some struggles with that and still have kind of a weird voice, but in hoping to be able to narrate my own book, I was like, okay, I'm going to take this seriously. I know how to create habits. I know how to create habits that help me achieve. And this is one thing I want to do. So I'm going to apply my own methods in terms of habit formation and practicing every day. And part of that was getting a voice coach. The thing that she said that was so helpful is just imagine you're talking to a friend as you read the book. And that was really helpful because I could do that, right? Sure, I could do that. Um, did that in the audition segment that I submitted. And frankly, Audible didn't go, oh my gosh, you're awesome. They were like, well, we think this might work. <laughs> you can give it a shot. And I was like, bam, I'll take that as a yes. I'm going to keep practicing and I'm going to do the very best I can on my audiobook. And it's a great story and something that was difficult, but you, you managed to get there. So acknowledging you for that one. Now, what we can all relate to as human beings, the, the planet has gone through an awful lot over the last 18 month period. And we in Europe and in Ireland still are uh, still struggling to get to grips with a lot of it. What are the biggest positive habits you've seen from the pandemic? The ones you'd like to stick and stick around and the ones that haven't been so great that you, we really need to drop, in your opinion. Yeah. You know, and both have happened. Your habits change when your environment changes. And the pandemic has changed our environment. It's changed what uh, we're allowed to do. It's our, our perception of safety and so on. So there's been massive changes. And so our habits have changed. And some people have really taken advantage of it. And they're cooking more from home. One of my cousins, John Armstrong, is a philosophy professor now he's like an incredible baker. He bakes all the time. Yes, he's still teaching philosophy and translating Plato and things like that, but he's baking. He also started running. He's at his best running shape. He's in his early 50s. Other people have taken up creative hobbies. I got more serious about practicing music, so I'm a lot better than I was. And I think some of us have taken time to be by ourselves or enjoy quiet in a way that might have made us uncomfortable before because it was easier to be by ourselves and not think we have to go out or go to events and so on. So I think those are positive. The negatives, ah, people don't email me so much and tell me about all the negatives, but I'm guessing a lot more media use, whether that's social media or TV. I'm guessing eating and uh, eating off game plan. You know, I've heard of people gaining weight, of course. Drinking, I suspect, has gone up as a way to cope with boredom and anxiety. 
and those kinds of things. So certainly with the change in our environment, thanks to the pandemic, our habits had to change. Whether we designed new habits or just let them crop up like weeds, we've all had um, our habits and routines change. Definitely. I can attest to some positive ones and also definitely some negative ones as well. You're mentioning a lot of stuff about behavior design and you're a Stanford professor from the Behavior Design Lab who has changed, in my eyes, the way we look at behavior design over the last few years. And it accumulated into a book that was released in 2019, which is now a New York Times bestseller, Tiny Habits. What was the biggest thing you wanted to do with releasing that book? Hmm. Oh, so many things. If I had to pick one... It would be to share a system that anyone can do that lets you transform your life by creating these habits in a way, in a method that I call tiny habits. So in other words, good news, people. Yes, you can change. And it's not as hard as you think. And you can start immediately. And you don't, it doesn't require willpower. It doesn't require discipline. And by following the system, you can have, you can transform your life. I think that is the main thing. A message of hope. On this podcast, we speak to high performers across many fields, but what separates people that seem to be successful is consistency and, and doing the fundamentals and, and doing those 1% each and every day and you know, being incremental. Curious as to, to get that transformation, what is the system? We have a little bit of an understanding of it, but not everyone listening to the show may well do yet. So we'd like them to dig into it a little bit more. Yeah. Wow. Um, Let me take a shot at it because the book's 300 pages. And if I could have done a shorter book, I would have. The system is a way to design new habits into your daily routine. And the habits are really simple and easy to do. And you help yourself feel successful. And the emotional piece of it, you giving yourself credit for achieving something, however tiny, is important. It really is a key part of the method. And that's because, and, and, and it's not so much you're doing 1% more every day. That, that's, a, that's a nice concept, but that's technically not what you're doing. What you're doing is you're getting started on an area that you want to change or improve, and you're creating a habit around it. And what happens is as you do that and feel successful, that then leads to a shift in how you think about yourself. Let's say you're struggling with snacking and you're like, oh, I really need healthy snacking. So you start creating habits, really tiny ones, about healthy snacking. And if you allow yourself to feel successful as you do those behaviors, one, that new snacking habits will start to wire in and become automatic. Two, and this is the important piece for the transformation, you'll start thinking about yourself in a different way. I'm the kind of person who eats healthy snacks. I'm the kind of person who sticks to my eating game plan. I'm the kind of person who, et cetera, all related to nutrition. And when that identity shifts, then these ripple effects happen. And even, they happen even within five days. And my Tiny Habits free five-day program that I've offered for 10 years since 2011, week after week after week in the data, people report, the vast majority of people report that they made other changes in addition to these new habits that were so tiny. And so that seems to be the key. It's you do something, you feel successful about it, that then helps you think about yourself in a new and different way. 
Now, it doesn't say I'm the kind of person who balances my checkbook. That's a different domain. But I'm the kind of person who eats healthy food, then can generalize when you go out to a restaurant, when you go to a party, when you are shopping, and more and more you stay in that identity of I'm the kind of person who eats healthy food. And that then transforms so many behaviors that you didn't deliberately design as habits because you behave consistently more and more with that new identity. He did pretty well, didn't he? 300, pa- 300 pages <laughs> down to a couple of minutes. <laughs> that's, why you're, that's why you're a professor. Um, so pulling on a thread there, help people feel successful. One of your maxims that we all would find would really resonate why is it feel? Why is it not be? Yeah, because let me give just a really quick story. So as a kid, I was an all-American swimmer and I didn't train very much. I was pretty natural at swimming, but I trained enough to compete and be good and ended up all-American. And so even as an adult in my 50s, I'll still compete uh, against other old people like me in their 50s. And in my events, which are sprint events, and especially breaststroke and freestyle, I pretty much wipe everybody out. And so there was um, an event that I went to and I swam and I got first in everything. And at the end of the event, I was designated as a swimmer of the meet in all age groups. And I went home and I was kind of sad. I was like, so what? (laughs) Okay, so what? I was very successful, but I didn't feel successful. It made no difference. In fact, it made me kind of sad. Now, the next day was the bowling tournament. So this was like the senior Olympics in our area. So I'm not that good a bowler, but I signed up for bowling. So I went to the bowling alley and I walk in and there's all these people with their bags and fancy balls and bowling shoes. And I walk in and I have to get rental shoes and I don't know which ball to use. And in my category, in the 50 plus, so I bowl and I'm not very good, but I get third place and I felt great. Even though I got third place out of three people, <laughs> but I still got third place. <laughs> I felt awesome. I was like, oh my gosh, I almost got second. I didn't, I was not successful really in getting third place, but I felt successful. And that made me want to bowl more. It made me talk about it with my friends. It made me think about maybe I should get my own ball and so on. So it's not so much being successful that changes us. It's the feeling of success that can be transformative. That's brilliant. And speaking of success and celebrating, we know you're very careful with the language that you use for behavior design. And something that often gets muddled would be celebrate and reward. So there's quite a difference between the both of them. Yeah, yeah. The the word reward is a word that I avoid because it's ambiguous. Um, From a psychology, an academic psychology perspective, it is the right word. Um, reward has a very specific meaning. But when you take it out to popular culture and the way people throw the word around, they're using it in a way that doesn't match academic psychology. And the problem is this. Let's say somebody wants to row for 30 days. Like, I'm going to row for 30 days. And at the end of 30 days, I'm going to reward myself with a massage. Now, that's not the meaning of the word reward within psychology. Within psychology, it's something that happens quite immediately and you connect it with your behavior. Um, For example, uh, let's say, well, I mean, one of the easiest examples are pigeons pecking on a lever 
and they peck on the lever and the pellet drops out, that's their reward. It happens in that moment. The pigeons don't wait 30 days to see if they've achieved it. So, But the problem is people take the word reward and they think, oh, I need to reward myself. So they set up an incentive or a prize. Now, there's a big difference between that feeling successful in the moment Uh, whether it's a pellet that drops out or a high five or a crowd cheering for you and something you will get 30 days later. And so because I don't want to have to train everybody on a new word or the distinguish, you know, what kind of reward are you talking about here? And by the way, the one that's 30 days from now, the one that's not connected closely in time, I call that a prize or an incentive. But because I can't like change the whole English speaking uh, community all over the world about that. I just avoid it. And I, and the key though, what a reward does is it, it is the thing that tells your brain I have succeeded. So instead in tiny habits and in my work, I break it down to that phrase that you said, I call it maxim number two, help yourself feel successful. However you do that, but as soon as you do a new habit and you want it to wire in and become a habit that's deeply rooted, it's that feeling of success that will do it. You can hack your emotion through a technique we call celebration to feel successful. Sometimes the feelings of success will happen naturally. You use a new product. Uh, let's say I buy, I buy new, uh, a new headset for my phone. And oh my gosh, it's so much better. This sounds better. It's easier to use. I feel so successful with this new headset. And it won't take me 21 days or 66 days or any number of days to create the habit of the new headset. It's going to be immediate. Why? Because it has helped me feel successful. So notice in the products in your life that you use every day, the ones that are, are habits that have just become part of your life, how they, they helped you feel successful on something that mattered to you. And you didn't have to repeat it. You didn't have to design or reward yourself and so on. Now, that's how habits wire in naturally. And it will happen. Like I have a coffee mug here. That's what happened. The first time I used a type of coffee mug, it's like, oh my gosh, it keeps the coffee so much warmer and it's easy to handle and it's easy to clean. I have a pen right here. The first time I used this type of pen, it was like, oh, my handwriting's better and I like this pen and it's clickable, all of that. Now, when it comes to habits like flossing, we don't have necessarily that kind of emotional response to flossing. So you hack it. And that hack technique in tiny habits, we call celebration. And by causing yourself to feel successful when you floss one tooth or eat that healthy habit or do two push-ups, you are signaling to your brain, oh my gosh, this is something that helps me feel good. This is something that helps me feel like I'm achieving something that matters to me. And as a result of that and other things I won't get deeply into, your brain starts making that behavior more automatic. And that's what a habit is. It's a behavior you do quite automatically without thinking or deliberating. And a huge part of, of starting a new habit, and very much a part, obviously, of your behavioral model, BJ, is motivation. And obviously, you've spoken about this a lot before, but, but fluctuating motivation, raining, I don't feel like doing my, my running, but I want to be that point that I want to be a runner. You know, that's the identity mm-hmm. piece I'm striving to be. Um, and obviously, seasonal can very much impact that as well. So what can we do about fluctuations in our motivation? Because that is so important for us to get to a habit we want to be doing. 
So important. It's a great question. Those fluctuations in motivation, we've all experienced it, and people have for thousands of years, but there has never been an official name for that, those fluctuations, which is kind of stunning when you think about it. And the research on that does not go back decades and decades. This is somehow a kind of a forgotten topic in academic research. So when I honed in on it, it's like, well, there's not a name. I'm going to give this a name. I call it the motivation wave. So motivation for any given domain, like fitness or nutrition or tidiness or relationships, will go in waves. It will go up and down, and they're not always predictable. And it's not like you get motivated to get super fit and the wave stays high. It will, it will go up and down. That's why I like the, the word motivation wave. Now, what? there's two things you can do, uh, maybe three. First, face the reality that your motivation for working out or being tidy or managing your finances will go in waves. It will go up and down. And don't be unrealistic to think it's always going to be high because that is the human condition. I mean, that's how we're wired. And it's actually a good thing. It's actually a good thing that we're not highly motivated for everything all the time. Imagine how awful our lives would be <laughs> if our motivation was super high to do everything at any given moment. I imagine there are some people that are wired that way. I don't think they're very happy. So, so just acknowledge and don't beat yourself up the fact that, oh, I'm not so motivated to go out and run today. Number two, for dealing with physical movement, pick a type of physical movement that you actually want to do. If you don't want to walk on a treadmill, don't pick that. If you don't want to run, don't pick that. So there's a lot of ways to be physically active. Pick what you want to do. And it might be running. That's terrific. And then, and, and don't pick something that you don't want to do and think somehow magically you're going to all of a sudden want to do burpees, like 100 burpees a day or whatnot. Like I'm not a very good runner. It seems like swimming and running are inversely related. I've got super long arms and a long torso and I'm a sprinter. I'm a terrible runner actually. So it wouldn't be for me. Um, so I'm not picking running, but I'm rowing right now and I'm loving it, digging it. So item number two that I'm being a little bit wordy on is match yourself with a new type of habit that you want to do, one that you already have some built-in motivation for. And then number three, as you go to do that habit or that activity reliably, don't force yourself to go big. If all you can do is put your running shoes on, bam, give yourself credit for doing a tiny portion of that habit and move on with your day. If all you can get yourself to do is run a mile slowly, do that. That's terrific. So the skill here is what you do is you calibrate the difficulty of the behavior with your level of motivation. And for things like this, and you guys know this, and everyone kind of knows this, you may feel like, I don't feel like working out today. Well, just take the first step. That's what the tiny habits method is about. In this case, you would just get on your walking shoes. For me, what I know in my home gym is I just work out for four minutes. And I have this, um, one of these bikes with the fan and the arms, like CrossFit thing that everybody hates. I kind of actually like that bike. And so it's like, I'm super tired. I don't feel like working out. It's like, okay, BJ, just do four minutes on that bike. That's all you have to do. And get on the fan bike you're on. Yeah. Can you imagine that bike? We know what this is like (laughs) CrossFit and they make you kill yourself on it. Yeah. I actually like that bike. Some days I go and do the four minutes and it's like, I'm done. Good for me. But that's less than 10% of the time, even though I think 
I'm going to do my four minutes, check the box and be out of there. Most of the time, most of the time, and I've tuned this in for about three and a half minutes, my attitude changes, my motivation changes, and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to keep going. So I'll probably row, I'll probably lift, I'll probably do other things. So it's almost like, don't make yourself do stuff you don't want to do, but do the starter step, do the tiny bit every day. It's almost like when it comes to habits, one way to think about it is a campfire and you want to keep the fire alive. And even if the campfire gets to be a little cinder or just a little, little tiny coal, as long as you keep the spark there, you can still revive the fire. So you wake up in the morning, it's this little tiny thing, you get, you get some tinder out, you blow on it and boom, the fire's back. That's how to think about your habits. Don't let it go completely dark. At least put on your walking shoes or at least do the four minutes or at least read the one sentence in a book. That's how you keep the spark alive. And then the days when you're more motivated, boom, you can turn up the volume, you can fan the, fan the flames, whatever, however, whatever analogy we want to use. So consistency really, really matters. And by dialing back the difficulty of the habit to match your level of motivation in that moment, that's the right way to go. And what happens, obviously we've touched on consistency several times, but say, say you miss a day. Say a day has just gotten out of control. You're on, you're on a plane flight and the kids are kicking uh-huh. off and you're, you're late for your appointment, but, but you want to be meditating. I want to do my five minutes of breath work because that's what I want to focus. That's my habit I want to bring in. I want to do 21 days straight, but it's not going to happen for me today. It's going to be difficult. What can, I, what can I do? Do I still do 30 seconds do I, or is it okay to leave that day? Yeah, two situations. In one situation, like if you're traveling or a huge emergency happened, just go, oh, well, I'll get back to it tomorrow. No big. I mean, don't focus on the fact that you missed a day. I am not a fan of tracking streaks for that reason. I think it can be demoralizing for some people. And you miss a day, it's like, oh, well. Now, if you miss two or three, then you might go, oh, do I need to redesign this habit? But a single day is like, no big deal. Just get back to it the next day. In other cases, if you can get in 30 seconds, of meditation, do it. But there are days when that may not be possible. So I'm saying don't beat yourself up. But if you can, just do a super tiny version and go on with your life and give yourself credit for, boom, despite the craziness of my day I was traveling or despite the fact that my kid broke his arm and I had to go to the emergency room or whatever, if you can do a tiny version, do it and Just really look at that, not as a failure, but as a success. Despite the odds, despite things working against you, you are able to keep that spark alive. And that is something to celebrate. You mentioned not tracking streaks, but we go online and if you, if you type in habits and things, you can get some very clickbaity articles that mention 21 days will reinforce your habit or 99 days, often arbitrary numbers. But from reading your book, the number of days to ingrain a habit doesn't really matter. Something else drives and creates habits. Exactly. It's emotions. And so one of the chapters in my book, I wanted to make it very, very clear. So it says emotions create habits. That's it. That's the longest short of it. It's not repetition. It's not making a public commitment. It's all these things. And I thought, you know, so the book's been out about a year and a half now. I thought that would be so controversial because nobody had talked about habits that way. Nobody had said, no, it's emotions and what you, call, you know, this feeling of success wires in the habit. And from 
people entrenched in the old fashioned way to think about habits to academics, I was like, oh man, people are going to fire on me. I'm going to get so much grief, but I have to share this truth, this insight. Well, guess what? People have embraced that concept. (laughs) And as far as I know, nobody has attacked me over it. In fact, people who have were even in the other camp, like repetition, if you like, it's a repetition, just keep repeating it. Those people seem to have shifted in a year and a half. So, and that's terrific because if people are only focusing on repetition as the way to create habits, they're focusing on the wrong thing. And if people understand that it's emotions that create habits, then they can focus on the right thing for themselves and for others. If you're helping other people create habits, help them feel successful whether it's your kids or your employee or your spouse or even your boss, if somebody does a new behavior and feels successful doing it, then that behavior is going to become more automatic. In other words, it's going to start becoming a habit. And so that is one concern I had about the book. And I mean, the the book breaks new ground in a lot of ways, and I'm not recycling the tradition. In fact, I don't think there's any traditional concepts in the book that I know of. And that was one that is pretty fundamental. Now, when people maintain that it's repetition that creates habits, challenge them. And when they cite an academic study, they will very likely point to, uh, and I'll just say it here, it's a study, Lolly, L-A-L-L-Y. So type in Lolly 2009, find the study that they cite, read the study carefully, even read the abstract carefully. And you will see very clearly, it does not say that repetition creates habits. It wasn't a study to design to show causality. It shows correlation. As far as I can tell, there's no scientific evidence that shows a causal effect between that repetition is what causes the habit to form. And so standing up against that, (laughs) and there's been a little bit of grief, but not as much as I thought, not as much blowback. And once people recognize that, I mean, that's what happens with products that you use and you love. Um, That's what happens when you go to a restaurant. It's like, oh my gosh, this was so good. Well, that's very like it doesn't take 66 times at a restaurant for it to become a habit. It's, once people just see, look at the world and their behavior that lens, I think it has become quite apparent that it is our emotions that make behaviors more automatic. Now you've been in service for so long, BJ, and given value and helped so many people, individuals, organizations, the two of us today. What habits have made you feel successful over a sustained period? Well, kind of a selfish one, working out, being physically active, achieving things physically. Um, And that's, I say it's kind of a selfish one because that's just me feeling good about me. You know, like this, um, I'm working up to 15 pull-ups. I did 13 and a half the other day. Um, I want to get 15 true pull-ups all the way. And I'm 6'3", and my arms are super long. That's what made me a good swimmer. I've got like, my wingspan is like, six foot 10 and I've got like monkey arms. So to do pull-ups, that's a long ways to go. So that for me makes me feel, gives me mojo. It kind of gives me a little bit of a, yeah, I can do this, you know? So physical activity for sure. Challenging one, it's sleep. So I've developed all sorts of habits to improve my sleep. I know that makes a big difference. Last week I've had really great sleep. Last night wasn't so good. So I sat down and thought what happened that it wasn't so good. But now habits that are a little less about me and more outward facing. I love teaching. I love teaching and sharing. So I will do a lot of things 
And right now I do a lot of stuff on Clubhouse because it's a great way to teach and share and also to learn. But I think having just the reactions like, oh my gosh, I'm going to tweet about this or oh my gosh, I'm going to tell my students or I'm going to rent a room on Clubhouse and share this and teach this. I love that. And what would be one more? Oh, I guess it's a habit. I've done this for eight years or so. I do 15-minute phone calls twice a week. And so right now I'm doing eight a week, eight times four, 32. I do 32 phone calls where people just call me for 15 minutes. I help them and I go to the next call. Just And I've, I've done 4,000 of these calls. And I guess it's a habit because it's always on my schedule and I always do it. And I don't decide whether I'm doing it or not. I just do it. But I think that is my has been my way of trying to serve and help others. So these are mostly people that are creating products and services. It's not like I'm doing counseling or individual coaching. It's people trying to create products and services to help people be happier and healthier. And I take the call, I try to help them as much as I can, and I hang up and I take the next call. So that has been, yes, a lot of time. Out of my use like 4,000 plus phone calls. And it just, people book them and I approve the appointment if it's appropriate. If it's somebody looking for help with like an addiction or something like that, I don't do that. I, I send them a different direction. But hopefully I've helped a lot of people that way. I know I've met, helped myself feel less guilty about not sharing my work in a better way. And that was a big motivation for the book was like, man, here's the, the fundamental model of behavior. Here's a method for creating habits. Here's a way to understand how choices work. And it's not easy for people to get to this stuff. Bam, the book has really helped in that regard. And then doing these phone calls puts me in touch with innovators. And frankly, I guess in some ways it's selfish too. Along the way, I learn a lot. I get a really clear sense of what challenges product creators are struggling with and some of the research opportunities I might bring into my Stanford lab. Well, you would have certainly provided huge value to so many people and impacted many. Next question is, who's been the biggest impact on your career? Ooh, tough one. I'm going to give a really unusual answer. Her name is Donna McClellan, and she was essentially a Sunday school teacher of mine. It wasn't on Sunday. It was during the week, and it was part of uh, the religious tradition I grew in, up on. And, she, and I was probably eight when I had her as a teacher, and she was so good. Her lessons were good, and she really cared about us. And she brought little prizes and treats and stuff, and that was great. But what really came across is she loved to teach, and she really cared about us, and she was doing the best she possibly could to teach us and help us feel our potential, help us feel like, yeah. And I acknowledge Donna McClellan in the appendix of my book. And so I think I'm going to pick that because teaching is so important to me. And if I can be just a, even a small percent of the kind of teacher Donna was to my students that I have now, that I'll have in the future. That's really important to me because teaching and sharing is a big, big deal. So I, I want to do a big shout out to Donna McClellan, who is now older, but still alive and quite active and just a, a wonderful person. That's cool. BJ, we've, we've just uh, transported over a, a DeLorean from back to the future and it's just parked up outside your house actually just just in time for right now in the middle of the show and what we're liking to get into is you're hopping into the DeLorean and you're you're going back in time to a 15 year old version of yourself what would you be telling the younger version of BJ Fogg right now 15 year old I would say because I talk like this and I was tiny 
I was tiny. I my my nickname at school was Squirrel. I was so small, and then I grew to be six three. I would say to myself, "Own it, own it. Don't shy away. Just own it, full on. Turn up the throttle. Get in front of everybody's faces. Be who you are exactly, and make them deal with it. And don't shy away. You've turned this what you felt like." a disability into kind of like your trademark, your calling card, your permission to just go for it. That's what I'd be telling myself. You certainly own the size on a 6'3", 6'10", wingspan now as well. I can't do that many pull-ups. <laughs> I can do about six, BJ, and I'm a little younger than you, so I feel I'm getting into the gym tomorrow morning. <laughs> yeah. Well, sw- sw- swimming in lats does correlate with yeah. pull-ups. So a little, a little bit of a cheat there. Yeah, swimming, <laughs> lats, pull-ups. Definitely in training. So this show, our premise was to learn from high performers in many fields. And there's a question that we consistently ask at the end of each show, and that is, what does high performance mean to you? Ooh, I'd love that. Right now, uh, I'll say this, figuring out how to use every moment of my day or my life in the most impactful and important way, whether that's what I'm doing at Stanford, whether it's what I'm doing in industry, whether it's in my home life, it's really optimizing the time, the very limited time that I and we all have on this planet to have the biggest positive impact that are that's in line with my objectives and what I feel like my purpose is. So it's not about achieving a big thing like, oh, I got first in the bowling contest this year, which by the way, will never happen. Um, <laughs> maybe, I guess, but I'll, I'll never make that a priority so it won't happen. It's, it's more about the minute to minute and even second to second Just did I prioritize effectively and did I bring courage to the table? I mean, in addition to skill, but was I courageous and and did I do everything I could to have the biggest positive impact in the world with that minute or this podcast or my class tomorrow or the phone call I'll have with my mom and dad in a few minutes? BJ Fogg, we're really humbled that you gave us a lot more than 50 minutes of your time today. Really appreciate it. Really looking forward to seeing what comes next from you. Thanks very much again. Very grateful and uh, get on to speaking to your folks because that's <laughs> way more important than this call. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Great question. Super fun to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, a story of high performance. This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at haoralife.com, spelt H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. Others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan. <laughs>